This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com moment. And by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now. So listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is great. Today's guest is one of my favorite actors. More than that, one of my favorite people. And um, sometimes folks who listen to the show say, oh, they're always better when you really know the person. Well, I've been spending um, the last, a uh, good part of the last year with our guest, Maggie Siff, who has um, a crucial role in our show Billions, which will premiere January 17th on Showtime. But even before I knew Maggie Siff personally, I was an enormous fan from her role, her breakout role as Rachel Mankin on Mad Men. And when Maggie said she'd be in the show Billions, my creative partner, Dave Levine, and I high-fived, and we're not <laughs> high-fiving people. <laughs> so, Maggie Siff, thanks for doing this. Great uh, to have you here. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I'm a big fan of yours and of your podcast. You know, I wasn't planning to start here. Thank you. But um, we auditioned hundreds of women to play the part of, of Wendy Rhodes, and um, certainly a hundred. And you read for it in... Were you in your living room at home? Um, yes. Well, it was the downstairs part of our house, yeah. I don't know if people really understand it. I hardly <laughs> do. So you're like, so can you, like, how does that work? You, yeah. re- you read something, a script, and then... Yeah, you get a script, and you were casting out of New York, and I have a house in L.A. with my family, and, you know, it's like, well, if you want to audition for this, you got to put yourself on tape, and luckily, my husband is oftentimes willing to be the poor Patsy who does that with me. <laughs> and so you like, you kind of, you know, you set up a little corner of your home and you try to, you cross your fingers that the lighting isn't god awful and that your camera holds up. And then you upload it to your computer and you ship it off into the ether. Yeah, it's an amazing thing because I remember sitting at home. You know, I would watch at the end of the day the various auditions that were, were posted. Coming and, in from all over. <laughs> and w- I saw that you'd read, and I couldn't believe it because Dave and I were such huge fans. And I remember watching it and immediately texting Dave and saying, Wendy Rhodes, you got to watch this. Maggie Siff read for the part, and, and there's nobody else who could possibly play it. And as you know, we found your email, like wrote you directly, went around the agents, yeah. and we're like, you have to be in our show. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was deep in, um, I was deep in my baby bubble when the material came through. And so I was sort of, I was saying no to a lot of things. I was saying no to a lot of auditioning. There's nothing kind of like having a baby that to make you really picky. But the script was so exciting and the role was so exciting. I was like, well, I got to lay one down for this. And I kind of clawed myself out of my baby bubble as much as I possibly could and sort of did the best the best that I could in the amount of time that I had. <laughs> yeah, this is a question I had, which is, do you know, oh, I I did that thing well, or I nailed it, or I connect? Like, what does that, what does it feel like to you, the times that you know, this is right, I should play this part? 
It's a little weird when you're doing something like putting yourself on camera because there are some technical elements involved in that, and you can also watch what you've done. So you can do several takes, and then you have the job of having to look at it, which is not great for an actor, but you can say oh, you know, I can adjust the lighting here, I can speed up this, you know, the angle is weird. Like, shit that you just shouldn't be thinking about as an actor yeah. that you end up thinking about when you're in situations like that. But yes, I think you you do know when you've um, achieved something. Interestingly, with that audition, I felt good about it, but I didn't feel that I had perfected it because... The scene that I, one of the scenes that I was given to do is this therapy coaching session. And I knew that I had taken a good stab at it, but I knew that if I were going to perform it, there was more that I would have to investigate. So I sent it into the ether thinking, feeling, okay, that can live out there. I can, I can stand behind that. But I didn't feel that I had gotten myself the job. It's interesting when you talk about that you had to look at it because normally an actor who's who's just acting in something and they're not the director or producer, you're putting so much faith in hands of editors and right. directors and producers to put the stuff together. Right. So it must be sort of radically different to have to then, to, to, to the, on the one hand, know that because on, on the day when you're acting in, a, in the show, you have to kind of go on if you want to do another take, if you ask for an, it has to be because it's something you feel. Right. But this, it's like you're actually having to become objective about yourself. You have to become objective, and it's a little bit painful. And you have to do it a bunch in order to get past the sort of painful self-conscious part. Like, I remember seeing myself on camera for the first time. I actually remember watching the pilot of Mad Men with Matt Weiner and a couple of other people before it had aired, and him being like, what did you think? And I was like, I just couldn't get over how I looked and how I sounded and, you know, in the costumes and the period and, and just feeling uncomfortable. Like I couldn't, I couldn't see the work in a way because there were so many layers of self-consciousness because I'd never really seen myself before in that way because I'd been a theater actor really up until then. So you watched it and to you, you only saw like the artifact, like you saw these external things. And so it, it, I saw these external things like my eyebrows or, you know, like the extremeness of the hairdo or, you know, just the way, I mean, we don't look at ourselves. If you had a mirror in front of yourself all the time, you'd be weirded out by the things that you saw, by the expressions that you make. You know, it's like hearing your voice on an answering machine. It's the same thing or maybe on a podcast. I don't know. And so, you know, as an actor who started, you know, once I started to do more film and television, I got used to seeing myself. But whenever these situations come up where you have to put yourself on tape for an audition, you kind of have to, like, you train yourself to kind of push aside all the things that kind of make you fundamentally uncomfortable to try to see the work. Sure. I have so many madmen sort of questions about that time in your life. But I think even now, you haven't asked we're 11 episodes in out of 12 for the first season of our show. And you, you haven't asked, you've saw the pilot, but you haven't asked to watch the show. I haven't. It's true. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if even now somehow there's a little bit of that there's something separate about what mm -hmm. happens after you do the thing. Like if it somehow breaks the spell, I wonder if it breaks the spell for you or if you know mm -hmm. it'll make you like, will it have the effect or can it of then making you self-conscious the next time you're playing the character, or have you gotten past it now? I guess 
I like to do the season before I see the work. I was, I'm glad I saw the pilot, and I think it's important to watch the show because it isn't until, especially the pilot, it isn't until you see a pilot that you really understand what you've signed on for because that's really the first time you fully understand the tone of a show. You hear the music, you see the production design, you see how it's edited, you see the pace of something, you see where the values are. And you can't actually know that on the page in some ways. Right. And, you know, I'm so glad hearing you lay all that stuff out because one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking about watching yourself and having to make these choices that you don't normally make is that you approach this stuff very much the way filmmakers approach it. You're really a storyteller. Mm. You do think about all this stuff, like tone and feeling, and in the scene mm-hmm. work you do too. Yet I haven't heard you talk that much about wanting to do those those d- things. D- um, no, I mean what I was gonna what I was gonna say was like I don't really like to see the episodes until I'm done because right now I have a feeling inside of me of what the story is, and it's it's yeah. a totally internal landscape of where the character has been and where she's going and, you know, and my own values about, my own value judgments about what I think my performance was in episode by episode. And if I start looking at the episodes and judging myself, which I will, you know, I fear that that will diminish the work that I have yet to do. Or, Or maybe I fear that it'll undo my confidence a little bit. I just have to wait. Because also... There's so much you have to surrender as an actor because other people are editing. And, you know, there are so many things that get layered on top of your performance. And it's really better to just stay close to the feeling of the character and the story that you want to tell for as long as you can and not to really break that intimacy. Do you like something about that kind of long-term surrender? I was thinking about this. You know, this is your third time. I know. I signed on again. Signing on (laughs) for a series, right? Because... Mad Men, mm. Sons of Anarchy, and now Billions. And it's an interesting thing to, based on a pilot script and conversations with the creators of something, mm-hmm. to say, okay, if this ends up going, I'm, I'm signing on for a number of, uh, years. of years, and I'm marrying a character for a long time. And what is your... What is that process? And I want to go backwards to your beginnings, because I, I think they're really fascinating. But since we're here, what... Mm-hmm. W- you know, my... Jason, who produces our, our show, said this this thing. He sent a note to me. He's not here today because um, I let him go back to his family for the holidays. <laughs> but he sent me a note, and he said, you know, Amy Schumer, when she was on the show, um, we were talking about this joke she has, which says, if there were something about my eyes, someone would have told me already. And, and Jason said, well, for Maggie, there's definitely something about her eyes, whether it's in Sons or Mad Men or Billions. She's like a lens into these morally ambiguous worlds. Mm. And... He's like, what is it about this kind of role she finds attractive? And he asks, you know, how do you prepare to play characters which is, with such a deep sense of empathy for the world that they live in? And and I'll add to that. But at the same time, these characters have a tremendous amount of uh, empathy, but they are also very morally aware. Mm-hmm. And I see that in all three of the TV characters that you chose to to play. And I see echoes of that in you. Hmm. And so what do you, how do you... Do you think about that in choosing and figuring out what's interesting or what you can lock into? I have noticed that those are the roles that <clears throat> have been offered to me. You know, it's it would be nice as an actor to say, oh, yes, I only choose, uh, you know, morally 
correct or or people who are sort of the moral lens through which an audience can view a work. It, it, that's just not true. I think roles find me more than I find roles in a lot of ways. And I'm not sure, you know, what it is or why it is that those are the roles that I have found. I think that I think that on camera, something that I do or something that I have found, you know, in working in front of a camera is a way to be grounded and a way to be still. And I think when I'm on stage, I'm more like kinetic. And I think that in front of a camera, for whatever reason, I like to grow very concentrated. I mean, I think a camera does concentrate one, but um, I like to play with that and I'm really, really interested in it. And so I think people, I guess, have noted that or like that in these kinds of characters. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you say that, and and it is true, of course, that an actor only has so much choice, but you definitely say no to stuff also. Does the stuff you say no to also live in that kind of place? Because it's, it's not that these characters are just the moral lens, the ones that you end up playing. They actually touch the dangerous dark side. Yeah. Right? It's not that they're the moral character in some perfect universe. They're maybe the character who's got at least a foot in knowing the right course of of action. Right. Like, could you play some... Like, would you want to play someone without a moral center? That's a good question. I mean, yes, I guess so. You know, as an actor, you don't want to have vanity, and you don't want to be attached to playing good people. You want to play all kinds of people, and I want to play all kinds of people, and I want to play crazy people, and I want to play bad people, and I want to play... Um, villains, and I want to play heroes. But I also think there's a part of me that um, really wants to play intelligent people and really wants to play strong women. Like, I really deeply care about how women are portrayed, especially in film and television. And so I think the roles that I'm most drawn to are the ones where the women are, like, really intelligent and really complex. And and I try to bring a kind of integrity to the roles that I read. And sometimes I maybe layer that where I shouldn't, you know, when I'm auditioning for things or when I get material because I'm a little bit of a feminist that way. And, you know, especially in film and television, there are a lot of roles that really feel empty or lacking. And so, and not the ones that I've been blessed to play, but I think sometimes... Maybe I compensate for things that I read on the page or try to, not consciously, but... Maybe that happens. Maybe that happens. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree gives you a full-stack payment solution and support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting Android Pay, Apple Pay, PayPal, Bitcoin, Venmo cards, and whatever's next, all with a single integration across all platforms with superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To check it out for yourself, visit BraintreePayments.com slash moment. That's BraintreePayments.com slash moment. Well, yeah, I'm wondering, and I'm glad you brought up, you know, the fact that these characters are intelligent you know, whether it's a doctor or uh, Mm. someone who's, you know, running uh, a business, someone who's a performance coach at a very high level and also a doctor. But because you um, 
I mean, there's no way to say this doesn't sound fawning, but you are an incredibly uh, intelligent person. In fact, I mean, I want to go back to the beginning. You know, where'd you go to high school? <laughs> I went to the Bronx High School of Science. <laughs> yeah, and what does that, someone have to do to get into the Bronx High School of Science? Well, one has to take a test. Right. So it's the most selective high school in New York City, right? There's there's three There are three schools, um, Hunter, Bronx, and Stuyvesant, and Bronx. Bronx Science, Stuyvesant, and Brooklyn Tech, when I was going to school, were um, the three. You took the same test to get into those three. Hunter was a different test. Right, because an earlier test, Hunter was And you needed to be much smarter to get into Hunter. I don't know if that's not true. <laughs> yes, That's it is. not true. It actually is. <laughs> but it is an interesting thing. For an incredibly, uh, you know, uh, and you were good at at STEM stuff, right? You were good at science and math stuff. I was. I mean, I think when you go to a school like Bronx Science, you have you have a very clear understanding of what your place in that universe is, which is oh, sure, you know, average. <laughs> okay, but average, <laughs> but average For amongst me. average amongst. I mean, to get into that school, you're testing in the top 1% or 2% of everybody who's taking the test. And they call those schools genius schools, gifted schools. I mean, that's what that is. And so I'm wondering what the expectations were like around you, for you, by yourself and from your family. For Mm -hmm. somebody who is such a high achiever scholastically and had sort of an incredibly open playing field in front of her to Mm. choose this uncertain life in the arts. So... Well, we can get there, but why don't we go backwards? Like, when, when were you the kind of kid that people thought was an actor, or was your bookishness sort of the front-facing thing? Well, my dad was an actor when I was growing up, so it was in my family. Um, he had a bunch of different careers. Right, he was, um, I thought he was a professor, too. He was a professor. Well, first he was an actor in his 20s, and then he went back to graduate school and became a professor of English literature. And then he went back to acting when he was 40, which was really when I was around the time I was born. And he did that for about 10 more years. And then he fell into sports writing, and now he's a professor again. So, when, At a certain time in this, I know, you, you, um, there wasn't a lot of economic security, right? Yeah, when, around... when my dad was an actor. <laughs> right. Well, so even more, no, even more interesting, because he, yeah. so he was this... Uh, he was a professor, an intellectual, who then mm-hmm. decided to go back to acting. And where did you live at that time? So I was born in upstate New York, which was kind of... My parents met when they were actors. My mother was an actor as well when she was a young woman. So they met in New York. My mother was in school for acting, and my father was doing theater. Eventually, when they sort of fell into the academic life, they were in Wisconsin. My father taught at the University of Wisconsin. And then they came back to New York... And I was born in upstate New York where they were sort of living off the land. They were also kind of radical hippie types. And, um, but the bulk of my growing up was in Riverdale up in the Bronx. How old did you get to be where they were still, you guys were still living on the farm? I was three. We weren't on a farm. We were in a house in the country. But you remember, you remember it because, you know, you told me this story once about basically you ate zucchini for <laughs> what happened? <laughs> My father had a dish called Zucchini Supreme. They, like I said, they were they were like you know hippies, and there was there was a bumper crop of zucchinis, and uh, I do have memory of Zucchini Supreme. I think it made it back to the city with us a little bit, but it's also deep family lore because everybody is nauseated by the thought but of you Zucchini still can't Supreme. Eat zucchini, can yeah, you? it's basically like bulgur and yogurt and onions and zucchini, and it's baked in a casserole with some like really nutty breadcrumb on top, and it's 
so kind what of did, awful. When, what did you think when you were a, a kid and you realized uh, that your dad was trying to be an actor and I guess it was going okay, but not... Well, I was too young to really be aware of the transition. Like, my first memory is of him being an actor, so... I mean, you didn't know the other. You didn't know the other life. Then. I didn't know the other life, and I knew the stories about the other life. I, you know, I'm the youngest in my family. My my brother and my sister are ten and eight years older than I am. In my mind, my family had had these amazing epic adventures because they'd lived through the '60s. You know, my mother was a member of Daughters of the Ho Chi Minh and. Daughters of Ho Chi Minh, and my father was a, a member of SDS. He was the only faculty member who was a member of SDS, and they were really involved in the anti- Radic- yeah radical anti-war, anti-war civil rights students organizations. for democratic society, and and they were involved in a lot of really weird and scary things that went down at that time. So by the time we ended up in Riverdale in the Bronx in this kind of staid existence, <laughs> or in my mind it was it was you know it was after my family had settled somehow. But my father was an actor, and I remember one of my earliest memories is of seeing him on stage, and he was doing a production in North Carolina, I think, of a, a play called Mr. Roberts. I can't remember who it's by, and. There were two things that happened that night. Like, one was there was a goat, like a live goat that came out onto the stage and peed. And I remember, like, sitting in the audience being like, there's an animal on stage. It just went to the bathroom. And, like, the whole cast, like, doing what they had to do to, like, clean up the goat piss and being aware that something crazy was happening. And then... That your dad was right in the middle of... Right in the middle of... of and then he also told me that he would find a way to say hi to me. And he came downstage and found me in the audience and winked. Ah. And I remember that moment being like, how is he up there as that person? But he's also my father. Like, and you were how old? Were you, seven? Yeah, probably. Maybe six. I don't know. I was young. And you had all these, you were trying to put the whole thing I was trying to put together. the whole thing together. You know, I mean, I can't tell if that's just the mythology of like where one gets an acting bug. But it was pretty good. I mean, I also, I think it's a pretty good story. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good, like, early seed, you know, for planting a kind of fascination with what it means to perform and be, you know, be present. Did, but when you would watch him, did the actor's life seem to bring him joy most of the time? Was it a happy house in that way? I think it was stressful. I mean, like I say, it was like it was a big moment of transition in the family and... There wasn't a lot of, you know, we were, we were poor, but I think, I think it brought him joy. It brought me joy to see him doing it. Right. When he would get parts, you always loved going to see him do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. And was his example presented to you, and I know your uh, siblings are older, but was the example presented to you of your dad's varied, their varied choices presented to you as the way one ought to live, sort of following whatever the passion is of the moment? Or was it was there ever regret attached to these decisions? You know, one thing I will say about my parents, both of them, you know, they've really encouraged me, all of us, to do what made us happy. So, 
you know, they, they didn't lay any trips on us in terms of like, you need to make good or you need to do better or you need to make a living or, you know. Uh, lay any trips is what you say if your parents were hippies. <laughs> By the way, that's, that's, they, right. they didn't lay any trips on us, man. They didn't no, lay any so trips. They, they let us smoke heavy, grass. They didn't lay any heavy trips. Right, right. No, but exactly. they didn't lay any trips on you about don't do the thing I do or you have right. to be an art. They, they, you're saying they didn't actually push you in either Direction. That's right. They didn't push me in either direction. My mother has a kind of, you know, my mother has a kind of amazing detachment in that everything I've ever done, sort of good or bad, successful or diminished, she's just kind of solidly there for me. And my father has more investment now that I'm an actor. I think for him, it's kind of, he has so much respect for the craft, as does my mother, actually. I mean, the thing... The thing about them is whenever they would come to see me in plays or anything that I've ever done, they've, they've shown up to everything. And they're always the best critics. Like, I say, what do you think? And they really, really tell me. And, and that's you been want true. them to tell you. And I want them to tell me. And it's been true since I was a child because they've always been like a sort of policy of theirs is to be honest. And if a child asks a question and they're asking it in earnest, they, they speak, they would, they would tell me the truth. And sometimes that was great and sometimes that was kind of awful. <laughs> you mean, when but, would it be? How would it be awful? Oh, I don't know if I want to get into it. <laughs> but you mean if but, you ask them about things that normally parents might not completely share, they would share it if they, in, yeah. in, in, because like, they had an ideology about it. They had an ideology about it. Like, uh, this is a little bit of a morbid example, but like... I had a friend who was very sick as a kid. She had a brain tumor. And I said to my mom, is she going to live? And my mom said, I think there's a 50-50 chance. Wow, (laughs) yeah. You know, I was like, like, what? And I, you know, I had to go to my room and reckon with it. And honestly, I'm glad she was honest with me. It prepared you for when whatever would happen would happen. Yeah, my friend passed away. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Thank you. But like, you know, my mother's a little bit blunt, but they're also incredibly bright. And in terms of... The acting stuff and the art stuff, they're, you know, they are each of them sort of artists in their own right. But but how did it make, yeah, so how did it make you feel when they would, like, when you decided to make this choice, did you feel like you were in some way honoring them or was it totally separate from their... I felt like I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And I think in some ways it probably did feel like I was honoring them because I was living a life that was self-directed, that was creative, that was interesting to me. You know, I think my father has always had a little bit more of a a vested interest, and we've gone through phases where I've been like, you cannot talk to me about my career, because he would try to give me advice. And I'd be like, Dad, you can't give me advice right now. Like, You I'm, haven't been in this place. You haven't been in this profession for 30 years. And, you know... Well, but also, I mean, you became incredibly successful at it quickly. Well... But I had many years of struggle. I mean, I've worked my ass off, you know. I have worked completely consistently since I got out of college. That's what I'm saying. You've been a working actor. Yes, but in in the theater and, you know, sort of I've certainly suffered a lot of like I had a lot of lot of rejections and a lot of like early meetings with agents that were like weird and uncomfortable and Oh, you had those? Like old Hollywood kind of meetings? Well, not Hollywood kind of meetings, but the kind of meetings where like you first you you meet your first agent and they're like they tell you to trim your eyebrows and lose 10 pounds. Like, I'm saying you've had those meetings. I I had one or two of those meetings. Yeah. What did that feel like? Totally awful. 
you know, like I think a lot of people, I think most people in this business have had those meetings. But I graduated from college and I started working in the theater in Philadelphia because I went to Bryn Mawr right outside yeah. of Philly. And um, Like on a full scholarship, right? Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. I had a, I had a tuition scholarship. No, I think it's really interesting because it's re- real easy for people, uh, I think, to believe that actors aren't using a full intellectual toolkit all mm-hmm. the time. And I think it's important and really a compelling part of your story that you had the raw ability to do a whole bunch of different things. And this is the life you chose because it mattered so much to you. That's that's um, that's yeah. why I think it's worth noting. Right? If you were an athlete, they'd go, oh, yeah, I got a full ride. The fact right. is you got a full ride to college based on, on, on your scholastic performance. Yeah, it's true. And when I was growing up, there were two things that mattered to me, you know, Performing mattered to me and being smart mattered to me. And like anything that matters to you when you're a kid, it's it's all a big soup of what you really, really want for yourself in the deep down earnest place and what other people want for you. Sure. So I think I had I think I had two sets of expectations laid upon me from my family. And I think they would have been proud of me no matter what direction I moved in. Neither my brother nor my sister is a performer, and I think my parents are both very proud of them. And I think that, you know, when I was a kid, unlike my brother or sister, I was shy. I don't think anybody would have thought I was a performer, but the thing that I thought I was a performer, I knew I was a performer. How old were you when you were shy? Like, you were shy until around what age? Oh, I'm still shy. Not now, but yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm like... But when it was like, you know, when you were sort of someone would have met you and defined you as, oh, Maggie's a shy person. Um... Probably into high school. I mean, no, maybe junior high school. I think I think high school. I sort of came out of my my shell. And when was the first more. time you were really on stage, where it was like, oh, I'm performing, and this feels exactly right to me? Um, well, I started doing like musicals in elementary school. Like I would go over to the junior high school and do plays. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you told me once that you felt really comfortable the first time you. I know what you're talking about, the story that I told you. It was when I was in the sixth grade, I got the graduation solo for singing. So the thing I should say about doing musicals as a kid was I hated the acting part and I loved the singing part. And the thing that I always said as a kid, but way before I ever started performing from the time I was like four or five, was I'm going to be a star of singing, dancing, acting, and art. Because those were the things that felt like they had meaning. And who would you have said that to? My family. Right. You know, like, I was shy with, yeah. with other people, but I wasn't shy within my family. And so you're, ambi- and, and in your family, um, speaking those kind of ambitions was a fine thing to do. Fine. Yeah. They laughed. You right. know, they thought it was, I don't know what they thought it was, but. So it's a terrible disappointment that you haven't made an album you know, <laughs> to them. They're like. No. I mean, I just, those were the things that to this day, like, still feel like they have the most meaning for me. And as I was growing up and even doing well in school, I would be like, well, I love this, and it's interesting to me. But the thing that felt most charged and most grounded and most meaningful and most fun were all of those things. And that was where I felt like my heart needed to go. And so I went there. And when I got to college and I was I was an English major and I was writing papers, that felt very creative and deeply engaging. And, you know, I love literature and novels as much as I love anything. But it all feels almost the same. Like writing a, a paper that you write in a fever in the middle of the night didn't feel dissimilar to me from being on a stage. Sure. You know? Well, it's really interesting when you say that 
um, when you were young, you know, these things that mattered to you were performing and being smart because both are kind of parlor trickish at the thin level we think about them when we're in <laughs> high school. Right. And, right. And then when instead it becomes about um, gaining meaning from the from using the skills that lead you to those areas, then there's a chance at being fulfilled somehow. Yeah. And somehow at a certain point you were able to recognize it because you're not someone now who has to come into a room and show that you're the smartest, most talented person in the room. Like you're happy to listen question, think, and then contribute in a meaningful way. I've never been able to do a parlor trick. I mean, honestly, like I've, I I never, I don't remember jokes. I can do impressions, but not on cue. Like I can only do impressions in the privacy of my own home when I'm channeling somebody in a conversation. I've always been too shy to be like, oh, this is what I think. This is what I think. I've always sat back and, like, observed people, and I think that's my role as a youngest child. So, you know, the thing that I think I've needed, and maybe the reason I am a performer, is I've I've needed uh, to create a space for myself where I can feel myself come forward. And I did feel that in school. I felt that academically. I felt that, you know, I could feel... Like when I had something to say in a class, I could feel my ideas sort of synthesize in the kind of horror and excitement of your hand going up and then speaking your thoughts out loud. Like, I mean, there was some trauma associated with that for you? It was exhilarating. I mean, I spoke in class. I didn't speak all the time, but I wasn't somebody who never spoke. Like... I loved the feeling of... But it was a real moment. I mean, the way you're looking, it feels like it was like a real moment, like, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do this now. I'm going to do this now. And it would make you feel jazzed, kind of like? Completely jazzed, because the titillation of feeling your thoughts converge into language and you're sort of heart waking up to the fact that you're about to share something and the way that makes you vulnerable and the way that opens up space for something else. And it's exactly like acting. I mean, at its best. Right. So that's what you try to, is that when you're, not when you're preparing, but when you're in the moment and doing the thing Mm -hmm. and it feels like you've, this, that you've connected, Mm -hmm. that's what it feels like to you. Like you've put something forth and created a a space out there. Yes. For something for real something or else, magical. To... For something else to happen, yeah. For something real to happen. And sometimes acting can be very frustrating because you're you you're working on something and you feel like you're not moving the needle and you need to sort of step away and What do you mean by that? That you feel like you're not moving the needle? You know, especially in front of a camera when you're doing take after take after take, sometimes you feel like I'm just making the same choice here. Like I'm not I'm waiting for that thing to happen, and you need to kind of, I I take a moment, I breathe, I, I take a moment, I try to breathe, I try to move my body, and let go of everything that's happened, and invite something else to drop in, and... You mean to be, pre- to almost absent yourself so that you can be present? Yeah. You say something to drop in. You mean that you're not going to try to generate something. You're right. going to try to well, truly, like, allow... A thing to happen as you're saying the words, as you're moving where the character right. moves. Surrendering on a different level. Like, you have to do all this preparation to arrive at the day to do the work. You know, you have to make some choices. You have to memorize your lines. And as you're memorizing your lines, you probably memorize them in a certain way. As much as you might not like to, you do. What do you mean by that? Like, as I was going to ask you how you, pre- how you prepare to do uh, scene work. Well... 
for me, it's still an ongoing process because, like, I come from the theater, and so I'm, you know, my comfort zone is rehearsal. (laughs) My comfort zone is, like, weeks of rehearsal. And, you know, in the work that we do, that I'm doing now on your show, like, I come in and, you know, you, you have to have your lines memorized. You don't really get to rehearse. And you work out the scene like as you go and so because for you the the 15 minutes or 20 minutes of rehearsal that is not feels rehearsal. like not a rehearsal that's not a rehearsal that does not count <laughs> that's blocking like at its most rudimentary level i mean it is rehearsal because that's all we have and you know you you got to make the most of it but so how know. does that change how you prepare I'm saying knowing that, how does that change how you prepare where the place you have to get yourself into? Yeah. Well, when you're on long-running shows, the nice thing is you know your character and you know who your acting partners are and you know who those characters are. So you can drop into the relationships very quickly. When you're auditioning, it's, it's much, much, much trickier. But in general, the way I prepare for our shows is I sit by myself in a room and I tr- and I try to hear both sides of the conversation, so that I can imagine my way into responding, really truly responding to Paul or Damien or whoever my scene partner is. So I'm not exactly doing their acting job, but in some way you are because I want to prepare myself emotionally as much as I can on my own. And I try to learn the lines really backwards and forwards as best as I can so that you're not hung up on the language, which is the biggest stumbling block when you're working on film and television and you have things to say. And people on this show, they talk. So People talk. <laughs> people talk. Oh, it's a really lucky thing on our show that every one of the uh, regulars on the show, all seven of you come completely prepared. Yeah. Only one of the seven sometimes doesn't have his lines, but he can, he's got a photographic memory and he can just do it. Seriously? And we'll talk about that afterwards. He, yeah, he can just, yes. I've always been so But Paul and Damien and you and Molly, just envious. if I can now narrow down who we're talking about <laughs> to Dave Costable, um, uh-huh. the other uh, four, the, you four come completely ready and prepared, which really does send, and I'm joking around about Costi, who's been my friend since college, <laughs> um, but he does have a weird memory. He, so part of his process is not to get too wed to it, but but he never holds anyone up because reading it once, he then has it. I've always been so deeply envious of people with photographic memories in our line of work. It is a huge boon. Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, Um, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing, but you know I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to the message on iTunes. But back to the, the, this question of process, because I imagine a concern with the, with the way you're talking about doing this is becoming in your head almost rigidly locked into a call and response and a set of blocking hmm. that may not actually 
I think everything about um, any kind of rehearsal you do, and I think this is true for theater or film and television, and I think I'm pretty good at this, is that you, you throw it out as soon as you walk into the room. So it's really just about, for me, it's about memorizing lines in a way that makes sense. I've never been able, to, and I've tried it, I've never been able to do the the thing that you see John Malkovich do and being John Malkovich, being John Malkovich <laughs> where he's just like memorizing the lines by by rote, like the words, the words. I, I've never, I can only memorize lines if I know emotionally what and why by I'm saying a- what I'm adding saying. an emotional memory, em- yes. emotional memory. Yes. To it. So when I'm memorizing it, I have to have that going on. Otherwise, they don't stick and they don't mean anything to me. And then I'm much more likely, if I, if I memorize by rote, I'm much more likely to lose the language. Are you, you know, alone when this is happening? Yes. You're usually. alone. You carve out time so that you're actually alone mm-hmm. and you're doing it. And no one's reading it out loud. You're not taping the other voice. And, no. Because some no. people do that. I'm alone. Sometimes my husband is like not that far away, but I'm fundamentally alone. And are you speaking your lines out loud when you're doing this? <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I speak out loud and I I repeat and I repeat and I repeat. You know, I do a lot of repetition. And I, you know, and I... Finding cadence sometimes? Um, I don't think about it that way. I I think about it more in terms of intentionality. Yeah. You know, what what does this mean? What does this mean? What could this mean? Could this mean this? Could this mean this? Could this mean this? How does it feel in my mouth and in my body? Yeah, no, thinking about it in terms of cadence is dangerous because then you're creating music and that's just bad acting and it's bad... And then, yeah, and then you hope you walk into a room and you can let all of that go and just be with the person and what they're giving you. And, you know, if I've done my preparation well enough, then I feel pretty nimble. Right. Then you feel like you can go anywhere that the scene may go. And it's when you're doing that process is when that's when you might call the people you're working with and say, I'm wondering about this or what does this mean? It's in that process when – is it when something doesn't feel – true to you? You can't quite see how the character is, uh, this, something about it uh, strikes uh, a false chord? Or, I mean, y- you've done that, you know, we've made um, 11 shows, and I think you've made one of those phone calls, really, where you were like, hey, there's two lines in this scene, I don't quite understand mm-hmm. them, and you were right. But w- right. Uh, is that because you're doing some sort of, tr- in a weird way, you're truth-testing all this by trying to find emotional memory for each line or emotional resonance for each line? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's when I most want to have a conversation with you, certainly, (laughs) is when I'm alone in that room, kind of really mining it. Because, you know, you can read it a few times and not really understand. I can read something a few times and not really understand how the uh, dots connect until I get into that room by myself and I'm really just trying to connect the dots of my thinking and the emotional beats, you know, from moment to moment and line to line as it bounces between the lines of dialogue between and, the characters. And it seems to me like you really love this, oh, that I, process. I love it. I'm watching you now. And you're, <laughs> as you're telling it, your body is engaged and your eyes, you're, you're um, almost, I don't want to overstate it. It's not like you're rapturous, but... I'm looking at you, and you're very alive when you're talking about this yeah. process. And it seems like it's a form of almost of writing, of create, of, of really birthing something. It's funny. I over the years, I've I've um, had a dialogue going on with myself about like what it means when actors call themselves artists. You know, it's like yeah. because in my 20s, I decided that. Um, that I wasn't a real artist. I was an interpretive artist. You know, you've heard that. Yeah, before, I've heard that. Right, but. But I actually think you're right. I mean, I think 
creativity is creativity and it comes from investment and presence. And the things that happen to actors happen in these really tiny interstitial moments where inspiration kind of sits. And it's different than composing a symphony or a canvas or, you know, but it's not. I mean, it is and it isn't because, you know, we're also using people's words. We live within so much structure. But those moments that actually make something powerful or meaningful is really an actor, like, taking lots of moments of flight within yep, all of you're that not, Because you're not merely an interpretive artist. By the way, not that there's anything wrong with being an interpretive artist. I mean, classical musicians are an interpretive artist, one could say. But especially, I think, on a... Uh, on, a, on a, a series, 12 hours of, you mm-hmm. know, hopefully we'll get a bunch of years, but at least we have 12 hours to tell this story. Right. That character of Wendy Rhodes is as much yours, more yours than she is ours because a different artist would make what we wrote. Uh, how's this? A different artist playing the part in the pilot would have completely changed the arc of the character. But that's the, the great thing about television right now is that it is this... Um, I mean, it's 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 the most exciting thing about being an actor on a series like this where, you know, we're having a collaboration and it's an ongoing living organism that we get to create as we go along. And we, you and I and Dave and, you know, all of the actors, like we are in dialogue, even if we're not actually having, we have lots of conversations, which I appreciate. You guys are so unbelievably open to the input that you get from your actors, which is... Yeah, because like it's not sto- it's great because it's you, you the actors are are to a person so respectful of our space in terms of that it's our narrative story to tell. Right. That then when we're talking about theme, emotion, meaning, we are dying for your input because you're the people who have to actually make the thing work. Right. And so we view it completely as this kind of collaboration but that's the thing um we send the thing out in the world and it hits off your instrument and then it sounds completely different right and it sounds richer and more full and better than just the words i mean that's what you when you're putting it together when you're putting a show together from my perspective you're hoping in casting it you're getting people who are going to be consider themselves artists Mm -hmm. and really take it upon themselves to make these people like live it's a very um, interesting and sort of scary thing about signing on for a job for as long as you do because you're like, wow, I might actually live with this person for a really oh, yeah. long time. And like when I was doing Sons of Anarchy, I I don't think I imagined that I would be that character for six years. I, like I don't think if fully it didn't fully hit me until I was about halfway through <laughs> you know or after the first year or two when I realized that it was really gonna gonna go for a while was that scary when you realized it I mean it's always scary when you sign a big contract you know and actually for Mad Men I only signed a right, one you year, mean a long contract a long contract yeah um for Mad Men I signed a one-year contract um for Sons of Anarchy I signed a seven-year contract and that was it was very scary to sign a contract like that. And then after the first couple of years, yeah, it was it was it was sort of an interesting conversation within myself cuz you'd start doing the math and you're like, "Wow, I'm going to be almost 40 when this show is over." And did you say to yourself, "How am I going to keep the character alive for myself?" Like did you then have to figure out ways to keep the character alive for yourself? Yeah, totally. I mean, 
you know, there was a moment um, <clears throat> in a terrific, season. Kurt's a terrific writer, so obviously he helped with that, but you still had to keep it alive. I did. And, you know, he was pretty good about sitting down with us at the beginning of every season and say, this is where I think we're going. And, um, or if something big was going to happen, he would sort of alert you to it a few episodes ahead of time. And, you know, there were a couple of moments where he would tell me a story point and I would sort of be like, oh, okay. Like I could feel it refueling my energy for the character. And so I think when you have the job that you have, which is to keep these characters alive for this long, you kind of have to keep – as an actor, you hope that you can keep reinventing the character and you hope that the writers can keep reinventing the character. But part of the nature of television is that you do – things move forward in a a cyclical way. So – you know, you kind of circle back to scenes that you've done before. You're like, I've done this scene a couple of times, and then you move forward. And then, you know... Yeah, as a creator, that's the terrifying fear. You try so hard to not have that happen. But it's a long-form story. Oh, no. Look, when, you know, you're in your... I mean, I'm not going to give anything away, but we took some big risks this as this we're bringing this first season to a close to try to address that kind of thing uh, mm-hmm. ahead of time. But um, I want to go back to this moment of the Mad Men pilot because can you set up exactly who you were before you got the, the pilot? You were, where were you living? You were still in Philly or were you in California? I was in New York. I lived in Philly for about five years after college. I was going back and forth a little bit to New York. Um, and then I went back to grad school. I got an MFA at NYU. So... Yeah, with a, and you were in school with a bunch of people who turned up in our show. Actually. Oh, yeah. I mean, the amazing thing about shooting a show in New York is all these incredible New York stage actors show up. And, and a lot of them came through my program, which is a really wonderful training program. The time that I was there, it was headed by Zelda Fitzchandler, um, who's a theater legend. And Ron Van Loo was our master teacher. Who's an, an, he's the reason I went to that program. I took a class with him at the Actors Center here in New York and... And you were a working actor when you went to NYU. I was. I was a working actor, but I didn't really have training. I, you know, I had lived and worked professionally at a lot of the stages in Philadelphia, and I had an incredible community of artists and artistic friends there. They were actors and dancers and choreographers and hybrid artists, and it's an incredibly fertile place. But I, I didn't really have um, the confidence, I think, to endure in this profession in a long-term way and I think I kind of knew that like I was just terrified and self-doubting and self-flagellating a lot after performances and why um, I you felt you didn't have craft or something well I think I had a lot of instinct I think I had I think I had some craft I think um, I think I didn't know how to take criticism I think all of a sudden being thrown into a professional realm where you're being judged and theaters are making money or not making money. And, you know, I think I just took everything in and took everything to heart and took everything so personally that I I stopped being able to really... I started having a hard time just fucking loving what I was doing. And oh, that must have been brutal for someone who loved it so much. Yeah, it was. And then I took a class. I was like, well, I should take a class. And I took a class with with this teacher. And he was just, he really moved me. And being in class really moved me. Seeing people really taking the process apart, 
And it made me understand that I could go back to school and that I would love it. And I loved it. Like, I loved being in a classroom. I loved seeing people working on the craft. And I loved letting go of the professional anxieties. I just, like, I just sucked everything I could out of those three years. And I never looked back. You know, I, it really did equip me. It, it made me a more versatile actor. It made me a braver actor. I, they, I had extraordinary teachers. It, uh, it's fascinating to me because I generally think these schools are all bullshit. And well, so it's I, a terrible proposition to go into that kind of debt. Yeah, that you're going to you know? go into debt and who and, and often are being taught by people who weren't able to do it themselves. And yeah. I mean, there are NYU is a great pro, there are some great programs, but I'm, I'm always shocked when I hear from someone for whom it was. Mm-hmm. had this incredible benefit. If we lived in a country and a culture where the arts were more supported, where you could really just like, yeah. you know, fuck around in a room for right, a couple really of months and it. then like do it and throw, you know, and yeah. and it wasn't so regional theater is so commercial and it's so bound, it's well, so, so bound up in, and even there, it's even more bound up, so bound up in uh, ambition. And ambition and and critics and, and, and everybody is feeling the squeeze of not having enough money and... Yeah, and it's, you know, it is a place where you can breathe and just fail. And but, every artist needs that, you know. So you got out of, out of NYU and you were working on the stage mm-hmm. in New York. I was working, yeah, that where year. Where else? I worked, I worked in New York and I worked in Chicago. I worked at the Goodman And where times. were you working when the Mad Men audition process? Well, that year I had done a play at the public and um, and I was doing I was doing a little off Broadway thing at the Cherry Lane Theater. I love that theater. Uh huh. Or maybe it was the Rattlestick. No, I think it was the Rattlestick, um, the stick, as my friend Tommy Sadowski likes to call it. And I was I think I was doing I was doing a play with Tommy actually. And um, one of the great guys and a great actor. A great actor. Yeah, we were. He was playing my brother. And um, I had had this pilot season where I was just like brutally, you know, it's like panning for gold when you're a theater actor and you're just like trudging through the winter slushy streets and like you get there and you take your ugly boots off and you put your heels on and you like try to get the line off of your forehead where your hat has left an indentation uh. and and uh, and it was the last pilot of the season. I'd gone all year and I'd like come, I don't know, I'd maybe come close to a but couple you hadn't of things, but not really. One. I hadn't landed anything. And I'd worked my ass off, and I was tired. And I read this script, and I was like, oh, my God. Right. And I was supposed to go in for Peggy. And my manager actually called me and said, I think Rachel is your role. And I was like, I think you're right. And so at the 11th hour, like I think that morning, I was supposed to go in that afternoon. At the 11th hour, I threw Peggy away, and I worked on Rachel. And um, I went in and... I ended up going back for Matt, I don't know, four times before he gave me the role. Did you know that as you were chasing it, so four times, I can't imagine having to go four times for Matt <laughs> and, the, and the network? Well, they were putting me on, the network was never in the room. It was uh, Matt and Alan who I, was directing it. I can totally, Alan Taylor, I can totally yeah. see how the first time or even the second time you could tell yourself you didn't have a big stake in whether this happened mm-hmm. but what did it feel like the third and fourth like how did you manage the desire <laughs> it's funny i remember my manager being like 
Well, it's never good when they make you come in for a third and fourth time. <laughs> like, yeah. He'd be like, I mean, you should, you know. Trying and, to knock your expectation down? Kind of. He was just like, I, you know, if they can't, I don't know what's going on here. They can't make up their mind. But I, I actually felt, I mean, it was one of those moments where I was like, mm-mm, this is mine. I just, I like, I knew that it was mine. And I was like, I'll go in as many times as they want me to that come in. awesome. When you got it. Because I was going to say when you watched the pilot, but you told me when you watched the pilot, you said at the beginning of this, you couldn't really recognize it. When was the moment you knew that your life was forever changed? Was it when you booked the pilot? Was it when the, when, was it when the show aired? Like, when did you realize, oh, my God, without even meaning to, I, like, became a TV star? Mm, well, I mean, nobody thought that Mad Men was going to be anything. I mean, we all thought we were doing an art project. It was a, an original scripted show for AMC. We were like, somebody will watch this at three in the morning when it airs and think it's pretty. You know, like, it was brilliant. And the pilot was so fascinating. I mean, the, by far the most interesting thing I had read all year. But, you know, we made it. And I remember talking to an executive at AMC saying, um, well, you know, I'm sure we'll make a season, even if it's just like, you know, an art project that gives us a little cred. And then the series didn't shoot for another year after we made the pilot. So there's, it was like a long, it had a long gestation period. And then it aired. And, you know, I knew I was done after I finished that last episode of shooting. So and it, and it had the even, whole season without understanding that you you were part of something that changed you know, it's, you know something I mean, in culture yeah you know it's one of my two favorite tv series of all time i think it's you know one of the two best of all time so I, when i think you got to just do the work without having to grapple with the legacy or with what was happening oh yeah i mean i was out the door of that job and into my next job cuz i booked sons of anarchy just a few months after i wrapped mad men before i realized that it was so you were shooting Sons when Mad Men first aired? Um, close? Close. It was close. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, I think it had just aired maybe when we started shooting the pilot. How for long Sons did it take Fantasy? you to get used to like where you then were suddenly? Not just like earning all that money, but just being. It was really weird. I mean, it was weird to go from that world to that world and to have the Mad Men kind of hitting such a huge note culturally and then to be on this sort of like gritty biker drama that nobody thought was going to another show that nobody thought was going to do anything i mean i remember talking to an executive at that network <laughs> and them saying oh this show will probably go but it'll just it'll have like kind of a small cult following but we'll keep it going for a while that's all you really need to be honest originally but yes then that show became also and like this that show also became kind of this a important thing cultural thing but you know, there was a couple of years there where I was like, I just was like, I was just on the the equivalent of the Titanic before it sank, you know, and now I'm on like, I don't know what I'm on. I don't know what this is. And, you know, the thing about Sons of Anarchy and me and my character and everything was she was such an outsider and I felt like an outsider for a long time. Sure, of course. In that world. Yes. So it was like you were getting rewarded in certain ways, but it also felt an odd fit in certain ways. It felt like an odd fit. I mean, Kurt says he he cast me because initially he did he thought well i can't cast her because she doesn't fit into this world and then he thought oh no that's why i need to cast her because she doesn't fit into this world." how long did it take you to accept that you fit into being not just a working actor but somebody 
in the public, really in the public eye, and really working where you were becoming, um, I'm not saying a brand name like Tom Cruise, but you were becoming, uh, you had become someone people really knew, like a Ma- you know someone could say a Maggie Siff type for this part. Was it hard, sort of, especially coming from where you came from, your parents, was it hard to adjust to even just, like, not having to worry about money for a period? So. It was really... Uh, I know it was not hard. You know, it, was it strange? God, that was hard work. No, was it strange? No, yeah, it was strange. It was, um, it was strange, but it was very... Uh, it was a great relief. I mean, I think that when you're a theater actor for as long as I was and everything else, it's like... To feel that pressure lift, you know, there's that statistic that once you earn like $70,000 a year, like your happiness level does go up. But then beyond that, it doesn't matter. And so I would say really that it's that initial, that initial moment where I could pay my bills, I could begin to pay back my student loans. You know, I didn't have to worry about bills going to collect, you know, that I was like, I felt a tremendous weight lift from my Did that affect your work at all, do you think? I don't think so. No, I I don't. You were able to keep the work separate. I was just talking to Dr. Doug about this, the this person I was interviewing about this, the role that I'm doing now, late research, late in the game. But um, I was saying to him, he was like, have you ever, has money ever affected the way you did a job? And I was like, no. I mean, money and acting have no... I think because for so long I felt like I was working for free. You know, when you work in the theater, you're essentially working for you don't make money, you know, and you did that I did that forever and you know, I very early on you're like, "Oh, well, this this does not amount to money and that's okay because I love it so much." And um and I think the nice thing about that is to this day I don't associate money with my work. And, you know, he was like, have you ever thought about how much money you're earning when you're working? And I was like, no. You know. Yeah, you know that you're being paid, but you're not, you're never thinking while you're doing the job. I don't think how much I get paid affects how hard I work. I think that I work really, really hard no matter what. And in some ways, the theater jobs are like I did this independent film right before we started. And... Everybody was working for nothing, and that makes you work so hard. Sometimes when you're doing it for love, it's like just love. It's it's fuel. That's a perfect spot to end <laughs> on. Um, Maggie, Sif, thank you so much for doing this and um, for doing everything I've seen you do with exactly that mm-hmm. c- kind of love. And it's apparent in all your performances Aww. and in how you treat everybody on set and everybody around you. And uh, in your wake, uh, if you ever looked back, you'd see people looking at you with uh, returning exactly that much. <laughs> so sweet. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Um, you can't find Maggie on social media, so don't try. Sorry. She doesn't bother. You can find me at Brian Koppelman, or you can email themomentbk at gmail.com and let me know what you think of the show. And um, if you feel like it, go on iTunes and say nice things and rate the show. And uh, we'll see you next time. Billions, January 17th. See Maggie Sip.